0: Hello humans, welcome to the second episode of the History That Rhymes podcast. I really was hoping to post this episode last week, but I procrastinated until now to get this out. Hope that is okay. Um, I started this podcast hoping to find some of the most interesting people from the history and talk about them. But even before I thought of doing this podcast, there was one Indian practice that I was super interested about. It is the story of a practice that elevated women to a higher class in the society in its inception and how it was brought down through a series of unrelated events in the history, contributing to what is now known as temple prostitution in India. Of course, I am talking about the Devadasi practice. Let's dive into it. When I was young, the family tradition was that we would sit and watch a movie that was on TV every Sunday. 6 p.m. every Sunday was a movie time with the family. Over the years, I have watched way too many movies, but no movie stuck with me like the one called Geje Pooje. It is really old, okay, black and white, um, and I think it was released in 1969 or you know somewhere at that time. Geje means anklet and Puje means worship. It is a ceremony where a woman is married to a goddess and leads the life of prostitution. Let me tell you a little bit about the plot, okay? The heroine of the movie is called Chandra. She is the daughter of a Devadasi. She is well-educated and understands the role of women in the society. Her mother does not want her to be a Devadasi like her and spends all her time and um, all her life giving her daughter everything to make her feel empowered. It is also a love story between Chandra and the guy who is her neighbor. Chandra's mother has a lot of clients and she, um, Chandra, is actually one of the daughters or rather the only daughter of one of the clients. Okay, a bunch of stuff happens and I won't bore you with the details, but they're mainly you know, religious pressure, societal expectations, etc. which we will talk more about later. And what happens in the end is that she is so overwhelmed with the life she is leading as the daughter of a Devadasi and the so uh, societal prejudice that is so unbelievable that she, ironically, ends up letting everything go and happily marries a deity and becomes a Devadasi herself. It really is a sad tale, you know, it, it made a big impression on me when I was growing up and I was interested about this practice for a long time. I wanted to know more and understand its history and that is what we are going to be doing today. Also, when I was young, I used to get really excited about movies that were based on, you know, mythological stories. I really enjoyed the special effects, the inevitable greatness by the end of the story, and of course, the rich way of storytelling. It used to be awesome. So naturally, my brain is a database of all the stories that I know from watching movies and listening to people talk about it. So I feel that today, um, I'm not that person anymore. You know, I'm more critical and objective. So the more I think about these stories, the more I understand the common elements within them, if that makes sense. So which we, we touched upon this a little bit in the previous episode, so I'm not going to elaborate. But I will tell you a story that I know from my childhood that kind of directly relates to the topic we are talking about today. It is the story of Reynuka. It is quite traumatizing, so brace yourself. Like many stories about, you know, mythological women, Renuka is always described as the purest of women, you know, extremely pious and dedicated to her husband, the sage Jamadagni. I won't go into details about her childhood and and her birth because, you know, they're not really related to the story, to be honest. Now, it is said that she was so pure that she was able to make sand water pots every day in the banks of the sea using which she would carry water to her husband for his ritual lights, you know, him being a sage and all. Um, I don't know how they're related, but you know, just just go with me here. So she would do this every day, you know, wake up early, um, freshen up in the nearest sea, make a water pot using sand and carry water to her residence. But on one such day, she happened to see a Gandharva couple bathing in the water and it was so mesmerized by the beauty of the man. This temporary lust caused her water pot to break since, you know, she is no longer a holy woman and she was not able to deliver water to her sage husband. I think the fact that she was able to make sand pots was, um, I want to say, symbolically related to her purity or something. Violation of her marital vows you know, is how this is described. A little dramatic, you know, but okay. Now, the husband decided that she had committed adultery and orders their sons to kill her. He ordered their sons to kill their mother. Totally normal. Um, The first three sons do not, I mean, what's with her being a mother and all, right? So, Jamadagni kills them by burning them into ashes. The last son, however, agrees and beheads his mother. The sage, inspired by the sun, his name is Parashurama, by the way, gives him a boon. He uses that to bring his brothers and mothers back to life. Now, Jamadagni is remorseful about the way he acted and blesses Renuka saying, you know, I want to read the exact phrasing here because it is ridiculous and it's, it's really bad. It goes something like this. He blessed her saying that unmarried girls would worship her as their goddess and these girls would be dedicated to her for the rest of their lives by marrying her and would then be ready to satisfy all sexual needs made on them by her son, Parashuram, present as he was within every man. The girls, said Jamadagni, would look at every man as Parashuram in human form and would thus readily satisfy his sexual needs without asking for anything in return, marriage in any form or any kind of permanent bonding or anything in cash or kind. These girls, Jamadagni endorsed, would have no right to turn back a man even if he was a leper, asking for sexual favors. Their source of livelihood would come from begging from alms from door to door on the Friday of every week in the name of Yellama. Problematic? Yes. What are we thinking? I am thinking that this was a story that was cooked up by someone or some people to normalize taking a sexual advantage from women. But of course, this cannot be right because Devadasi practice was something completely different when it started. So the Devadasis were considered auspicious and lived a rich and, you know, dignified life. It was turned into a sexual practice very recently, you know, during Islam invasion, British rule, etc. So so the origin story cannot possibly tied to the story of Renuka, who is later worshipped as Yellama. I agree, um... The reason why I narrated that story was because even today, young girls are made Devadasis in the name of Goddess Yellama. There is a loose link there and some people do believe it. So if that is not how the Devadasi practice began, and if Devadasis were people belong to respectable social classes, how did it even begin and origin in the first place? Well... The details are murky okay, and contradictory, but there are some evidence which suggests that this practice was introduced sometime between 6th to 10th century CE. Let's take a look at some of those evidences, okay? A lot of people consider Amrupalli as the first Devadasi. She was believed to have lived during the Gautam Buddha period and she has a fascinating story, but you know, maybe we can talk about it in a, in a different episode. Other sources quote that Kalidasa, the great poet, in his poem Megaduta has quoted Devadasis. An inscription dated to the 12th century suggests that there were 400 Devadasis attached to the Tanjore temple in South India. Some others say that the first confirmed reference to a Devadasi was during the Keshari dynasty in the 6th century AD in South India. Um, it is believed that the queen decided to have women assigned specifically for temple duties who were trained in classical arts to honor the gods. C. Sharma says that the custom came by about 3rd century and is as old as Kautilya. Kunjan Pillai suggests that Somadevas, um, this is a little difficult, but Kathasaritsgara of the Gupta age contains the first undoubted reference to the Devadasi system in northern India. There is also a reference made to the Devadasis in the um, Kumara Panha of Buddha Gosha of the 5th century CE in Kumara Panha when a monk says the deity descends, uh, descends into the body of a Devadasi and answers the questions. Now, that's way too many references, inscriptions and sources. So I'm narrowing it down by saying that the custom started somewhere between, I want to say, 3rd and 10th century CE. See, I'm not really too bothered about the when aspect of this ritual and want to focus more on the how and, and why aspects of it because, you know, they seem quite interesting. So let's just do that. So what is the system? What makes someone a Devadasi? What are their responsibilities and how did they live before? I want to know more about this, okay? So a Devadasi is someone who is dedicated to a temple deity for the rest of her life her main task was to you know take care of all the activities around the temple she was also taught in many of the classical dance forms and would perform in the temples as an offering to the gods they were considered eternal brides as you know they would be married to the god and this would happen through a complete marriage ceremony except that the groom you know was a god or a goddess of the temple in the beginning they were also expected to lead a life of celibacy but it's you know um questioned by some people, but we'll get to that. Uh, Kings would be the patrons of these temples and supported the lifestyles of these devadasis. Okay, They had a high rank and dignity in society and were exceptionally affluent as they were seen as the protector of the arts. During these periods, royal patrons provided them with gifts of land, property, chivalry, you know, like all of those stuff. They even traveled with the king, contrary to the wives, implying that the Devadasis had more rights or authority than those of the king's wives. So the, uh, they led a great life. Okay, So what propelled the system? So Farkuhar stated something that goes so well here. He said that, and I quote, Every well-appointed Hindu temple aims at being an earthly reproduction of the paradise of the god in whose honor it was built. The so represented by the temple band, The Apsaras by the courtesans who sing and dance in the service. So temples were essentially an integral institution at the time. Um, There was a raise in the caste system as well during that time. And many temples were built during this time. So the temple services were kind of exaggerated and they were elaborated a little bit. Um, It created a space for a specific group of people. To, you know, like fan the idol, carry the sacred light and sing and dance before the god, things like that. So in a book, uh, Religious Thought and Life in India, Monier Williams described Devadasis in a way that they were held to be married to the god and had no other duty but to dance before his shrine. Hence, they belonged to the gods and had no other duty but to dance before his shrine. Pretty awesome, right? Hence, they were called the God's Slaves, or quite literally, Devadasis. So naturally, this was a high-status position. But all of this would do a 180 turn in the coming decades, and the custom would be used to exploit Dalit women sexually and force the poor families to use their daughters as an asset. We will get to that in a bit. But before that, let's take a look at how these Devadasis flared during different reigns. The Cholas, for instance. Uh, the Cholas supported this custom. They even had male Devadasis at the time. There are inscriptions that suggest that over 400 dancers were maintained in the Brihadishwarar temple. The main counterparts were called Naktivarans and they provided accompaniment to Devadasis during you know, temple celebrations by conducting orchestras. There is also an inscription that suggests that these Naktivarans thought the Chola princess Kuntavai. So the tradition was a success in the Chola empire. That's awesome. Uh, remember I told you before that there is a link between the story of Renuka who was worshipped as Goddess Yellama? That link is the Yellama cult of Karnataka. So this practice is in place in Karnataka for over 10 centuries. They practice the Devadasi system in the name of the Goddess Yellama. I find it odd and interesting that so many historical events that are not accepted today were made to fly only because you know they were attributed to gods and goddesses. Um, Manu Espillai in his book The Ivory Throne talks about one such story of Marthanda Verma and how he legitimized his claim through religion. Uh, That is a story maybe for another episode but speaking of Manu Espillai, he has dedicated some pages in his book to talk about the Devadasi system in Travancore. In the chapter dedicated to the triumph of uh, Rani Gauri Lakshmi Bhai over the miserable Ummine Thampi, we get a glimpse of the Devadasi system in the South India. In his attempt to talk about the Devadasi system, he uses some stories from the past, you know, a 2,000-year-old inscription of Emperor Ashoka that tells the tale of Devadina and um, Sutanaka, I want to say, the beautiful Devadasis he loved, the poem Megaduta by poet Kalidasa that portrays the vivid pictures of the great shrine of Mahakala in Ujjain, which, as he puts it, resounds with the sounds of the ankle bells of the dancing girls, which we briefly touched upon before. You know, things like these. There is also mention of an 8th century king of Kerala who went on to dedicate his own daughter to the deity at Sri Rangam. So, so what changed? How did the system that gave a high social status to women once upon a time got reduced to temple prostitution that prevails even today, wherein women from lower castes are exploited for sex? So, to understand that, I guess we need to take a look at the post-Chola period. We already talked about how the Chola supported the Devadasi system before. So, what happened after their decline? So, here we reach the time during the Mughal rule, wherein we saw a lot of temple destructions. So, in the previous episode, I alluded to the fact that uh, the temples of Hoysalas were destroyed by Islamic invasion. But, you know, they stand even today, or, well, what's left of it, at least. So this was a common scene across many Indian states and temples. Um, the rise of Mughals led to you know, uh, the destruction of temples and their grip on the country forced many of the non-Islamic rulers to retire and surrender. This we already know, right? These were the same rulers who were also the patrons of these temples, the patronage that supported the Devadasya system. So you can see um, how it kind of started deteriorating the whole system. There were certain references about the Vijayanagara Empire and its attempt to bring the Devadasi system back to how it originally was, but that was not to last long. Uh, Kunal M. Parker, a semantic scholar, suggested that the political instability of the state, the loss of the importance of the temple institution, frequent political interlude among Devadasis, repeated transfers of the Devadasis from one temple to another, And the graded hierarchical order of the system distracted from their so-called sacred principles of, you know, the divine services. You know, these were the few causes for the degradation of the system. So also the system was not too prevalent in the north as it was ruled majorly by the Mughals and Persians who hated the system to begin with. And, you know, they were completely against them. Kafi Khan, um, a famous historian, noted about this pathetic history of a Devadasi of North India, especially on Aurangzeb's reign. He pointed out that Aurangzeb issued a public proclamation prohibiting singing and dancing by women and at the same time ordered all the dancing girls to either marry or be banished from his kingdom. Rude, you know, but okay. So the system starts breaking down here and the last nail in the coffin is hammered by the British. So let's move on to the colonial era. So two things happened here. So the kings and queens were either overthrown by the British or they ruled under the strict rules and governance of the company. So the same kings who were also the patrons of the temple like before. So as a result, Devadasis were left without their traditional means of support and patronage. The British outright thought that the system was prostitution. They were not able to grasp the concept of cultural offerings to the gods and equated this to street dancing. This is also disputed by many. It is also believed that the British painted this as prostitution to serve their own purposes. I mean, one of the things that they did was tell everyone that they were here to teach Indians how to live with grace, you know, suggesting that Indians lived like savages. And this system was a crutch that they used to further prove the grotesqueness of Indian culture. I mean, you know, one among many. I I should say. So it is funny because they also maintain brothels in India. So yeah. So since Devadasis were associated with prostitutes, they were also associated with the spread of venereal diseases. Many British were exposed to these diseases in brothels and sadly, Devadasis were held responsible. So the British government mandated that all prostitutes must register themselves and Devadasis were forced to register as they were thought to be prostitutes as well so apart from these women were treated for these diseases and some devadasis were brought to the hospitals against their wills and you know so many of these women were never to be seen again from their families so they lost their financial means and ironically were forced to do the things they fought so hard not to be a part of being mistresses of royal and rich men any girl um, any girl child born from the union from that union was also dedicated to temple And boys were trained as musicians. So this led to the religious prostitution in temples of India, which which continues till day, sadly. So the Devadasis were exploited by the rich, powerful and upper class people. And on the other side, their financial needs did not permit them to leave this practice. And ultimately, they were driven to value prostitution. Despite all of these, some of the Devadasis achieved incredible feats. Uh, as Manu Espilai says in his book, these women had high social status with good education. Okay, so these Devadasis remained dedicated to their art even in the 19th century as mu- uh, musicians and actresses. The Queen of Theatre in Madras, by the way, was a Devadasi called Balamani. A troop of these Devadasis traveled west and became the first group to perform all over Europe. M.S. Subalakshmi, you know, the great Carnatic musician during the 20th century, descended from a line of highly talented Devadasis. So, the Devadasis did not sit quietly and hope to unionize in an attempt to stop these imposing of Western moral codes on their Asian practices. Uh, A Devadasi association even submitted a memorandum to make sure that they be considered a minority and that their rights and privileges must be guarded. And they were not happy to have the practice equated to Western prostitutes. I mean, that's really offensive. But, you know, this was the beginning of the end for the system. The Devadasi system was smeared by dirt and equated to something that it was not by the reformists and British. And with the influx of Victorian decency that was shouted into the throat of Indians, the Devadasis lost their footing. So, what does the system look like now? It was formally outlawed in India in 1988. So, does that mean this system is completely eradicated? Unfortunately, it has turned into something worse. So, in an article written by Tanya Kumar called The Devadasi System, A Tradition India Regrets, published in 2019, Tanya puts it well. She says, and I quote, A girl child in our society is treated more as a liability, in the sense that there is always the burden of marriage. Families feel that they don't need to educate the girl child. They always prefer a male child because they believe that they are the liberators of their souls when they die. (laughs) When this comes to the poorer families, if they get a female child, they think about how they can convert this liability into an asset. The system of ritual prostitution is one of the coping strategies that is adopted where they feel that dedicating their child to the goddess is acceptable post which the girl child will be taken over by one of the landlords. The landlord assures some kind of regular income to the family. This religious ritual has now just become a medium or mere justification for poorer families to pimp out their daughters. Wow. So that is what it is now. Okay. So many of these devadasis are now prone to a lot of sexually transmitted diseases and have nobody in the community to take care of them. In a couple of villages, they are even denied the right to visit the local hospitals and since they are considered to have bad blood. So when these Devadasis get old and have none of the men approach them, they go around door to door begging for money, telling people how the lifetime of the Devadasi profession is only about, you know, 15 to 20 years after which these women are helpless. This entire tradition makes the Devadasis desperate for money and they honestly become really vulnerable. So, you know, naturally efforts are being made to wipe away the system and it almost is, but the number of Devadasis is decreasing, but you know, it is not completely eradicated. Indian government has been working towards it since a very long time ago. The first legal initiative was taken in uh, 1934 called the Bombay Devadasi Protection Act. This made the Devadasi system illegal, which is awesome. The parents giving their daughters up to temples and pushing them to prostitution in the name of God was outlawed. This was in uh, the time of the British. In 1947, after the independence, the Madras Devadasi Act outlawed dedication in the Satran Madras Presidency. So, the Devadasi system was formally outlawed uh, in all of India in 1988, as, uh, as I said, although some Devadasis still practice the system illegally. So all of this is a lot of information. We talked about how the system began, how it progressed, how it was perceived and focused mainly on the lives of Devadasis throughout the centuries. So before I end the episode, I'd like to leave you with, you know, some answers for three main questions. I'd like to credit Ankur Shingal, who wrote a piece called The Devadasi System, Temple Prostitution in India, which I used as a part of my research amongst many other things. So this paper is very well written and provides a lot of information. You should check it out. Anyway, so the first question is this. How many Devadasis are there in India today? It is very difficult to get the exact number, mainly because this is now an underground practice and it is also difficult to differentiate this practice with prostitution. But according to the Indian National Commission for Women, there are at least um, 44,000 active Devadasis in India and also notes that the number could be, in fact, as high as 250,000. So what does this practice look like today? The current manifestation of this practice has nothing to do with temple worship or offering cultural performances to the deity. It still begins with giving away small girls in the name of gods and using these low caste girls in sex trading and prostitution. It is sad to know that these girls are so young, like you know as young as 6 to 10 years old. So this practice is still deep-rooted in many places due to its connection with religion which provides an easy out for poor families who do not want to take care of their daughters. Now the last question, why does this system even persist? There are multiple layers to this. There is the religious layer. You know, many people believe that offering something to the god will help them with their problems and bless their families, things like that. Many a times, some people will enter this practice without being pushed into it, voluntarily. This is because currently the lower caste people are the ones, you know, who are uh, affected by this a lot. This is an out for many women to rise above their rigid caste system. So, the Devadasis, despite the atrocious ways that they are treated, are still believed to be auspicious and, and they are invited to the weddings and religious ceremonies of the higher caste people. So this is an easy way to move away from the low caste association, as some believe. The other thing is perpetuated by priests. Okay, If a family goes to a temple with problems, in some cases, priests suggest offering a girl to the deity with a promise that the goddess will bless the family. I mean, some people even take this seriously you know, and go with this. And uh, the next one is the economic necessity. right? As I said before, a lot of people from the lower caste are subjected to this. They're only given menial jobs with minimal salary, no matter how many years they work. And in situations like these, parents force their daughters into this practice in hopes of providing a better future, in quotes, through more money. Oh, the irony. And of course, there is the societal pressure as well. So these are some of the reasons why this culture is still practiced in many places in India. So, you know, there you go. A practice that once empowered women through arts and culture that provided them with agency and a high social class has now been reduced to a practice that takes advantage of young girls and, and suppresses them because of a rigid caste system, You know, forcing them to lead a life that is chosen by someone else. We still have a long way to go. On that note, I will close this episode, but before that, let me read out William Dalrymple's take that he wrote for The New Yorker. There is an almost unimaginable gulf separating the Devadasis of ancient poems and inscriptions and the lives lived by women today. In the Middle Ages, the Devadasis were drawn from the grandest of families in the realm, among them princesses of the Chola royal family and possibly from slaves captured in war. Many were literate and some were highly accomplished poets. Indeed, at the time, they seemed to have been among the few literate women in the region. Today, the Devadasis are drawn exclusively from the lower castes, usually from the Dalit Madhur caste, and are almost entirely illiterate. The majority of modern Devadasis in Karnataka are straightforward sex workers. With that, I will end this episode. Hope this was informative. Feel free to do your own research and learn about this practice. Thank you for listening, and I will be back with episode 3 soon. Bye!